goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Martin Wolf, som jeg har talt med i den her uge, er chef-analytisk kommentator på Financial Times. Det har han været siden 1987. Han har altså i tre et halvt årti været en indflydelsesrig autoritet i udlægningen af verdensøkonomien. Han er blevet kaldt for verdens førende finansanalytiske skribent og for den vigtigste økonomiske journalist i verden. Han har et meget stort publikum, og han er sådan en, som man uanset om man er venstreorienteret eller højreorienteret, borgerlig eller socialist, følger og taler om. Han har et enormt overblik, han har en kolossal viden, og han har en formidabel analytisk forståelse, der gør, at han kan bringe nogle meget, meget komplekse problematikker på en fællesnævner, som han kan fremstille helt klart for folk. Så den økonomi, der kan forekomme uhåndgribelig og abstrakt og uden for politisk rækkevidde, pludselig bliver til noget, man kan diskutere, forhandle og ultimativt lave om, når man læser Martin Wolf. Han er født i London i 1946. Begge hans forældre er jøder, som flygtede fra de lande, de kom fra under 2. verdenskrig. Så baggrunden for Martin Wolfs liv, det er oplevelsen af nazismens redsler, og bevidstheden er, at det kan altid vende tilbage. Det er den horisont, han er vokset op i. Han har haft forskellige orienteringer. Jeg synes, han er for analytisk til, man kan kalde det ideologiske orienteringer, men forskellige orienteringer som ung økonom blev han ansat i Verdensbanken, som ligesom var det sted, man som økonom på det tidspunkt gik ind for at være med til at bidrage til udviklingen i verden og med til at præge udviklingslandene og troede på, at man faktisk kunne gøre noget godt for fællesskabet. Det blev han vældig desillusioneret over i 80'erne. Senere var han mere globaliseringsoptimistisk og tilhørte vel det, vi her på Dagblad Information, vil han tilbøjelighed til at kalde for neoliberalismen. Men finanskrisen blev ligesom kulminationen på en skepsis, som han havde bygget op, og en kritisk indstilling, han havde bygget op over nogle år. Han skrev bogen The Shifts and the Shocks, What We've Learned and Still Have to Learn from the Financial Crisis, der ligesom både blev et personligt manifest og en kollektiv erkendelse af, hvad der var gået galt i finanssektoren. I øjeblikket er han ved at færdiggøre en bog, som kommer i det nye år, den hedder The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. Det er en bog, vi er mange, der har meget store forventninger til. Hello. Hello, is this Martin? Men for nogle uger siden, der hørte jeg Martin Wolf i en samtale med Christiana Figueres, som er kosterikaner og som er indflydelsesrig klimaaktivist og klimaembedskvinde. Hun var blandt andet med til at lave Paris-aftalen og er vært på en fantastisk klimapodcast, der hedder Outrage and Optimism, som jeg hermed anbefaler. Og der hørte jeg Martin Wolf fortælle om klima, hvor han havde en meget radikal analyse af vores politiske systemers afmagt og afstanden mellem det, vi burde gøre, hvis vi skulle løse problemet, og den vej, tingene bevæger sig. Og han sagde på et tidspunkt i interviewet, at han var nået dertil, hvor der kun var to ting, han egentlig troede på at kunne redde os. Det ene var en benevolent diktator, altså en velgørende global diktator, men som han så tilføjede, der er ingen diktatorer, der bliver ved med at være velgørende. Så den ene ting, han troede på, afviste han med det samme. Den anden ting, han troede på, der kunne redde os, det var det, som man kaldte et moderat stort chok. Et chok, der var stort nok til at vække os til deltagelse, men ikke så stort, at alt håb var ude. Så drastisk var Martin Wolfs analyse, og da jeg hørte det, skrev jeg straks til ham og sagde, jeg vil enormt gerne tale klimakrise, politisk beredskab, systemkapacitet, hvad kan politikerne gøre, hvad kan markedet gøre? 
Og hvad betyder det for hans syn på historien og på menneskeheden, at han når til de konklusioner i samtalen med Christiana Figueres? Han sagde ja, og her er så den samtale, som fulgte efter min henvendelse til ham. God fornøjelse. I was curious. Climate change has a history in our societies. Now we've been dealing with it since the Rio summit in 1992. Yes. How did you think of of uh, climate change when the problem was first articulated? What was your initial reaction to this problem? How did you think of it through the 90s? Um well the answer to that is I think it's been a serious global discussion has been going on for about 30 years. So at the global level, as you said, the um, the Kyoto Conference was in 1992, which is exactly 30 years ago. Um, obviously, scientists were thinking about this before, but I wasn't really aware of it uh, in my work at that time. So it was only after 1992. Um, the honest answer is my uh, reaction for the first 10, 12 years after that was I wasn't sure how clear the science was. That was sort of, it seems to me, was sort of accumulated in plausibility. And in the early 2000s, I came to the view that whether or not the science was strong, the chances that we would actually manage to do anything useful about it uh, in politics were very, very small. I'm just incredibly small. So I decided at that stage, up to about 2005-6, that even if it was becoming more obvious that this was a significant issue, that it was going to be a waste of time to do much thinking about it because we just weren't going to do anything about it. And the only option was likely to be adaptation when it happened. From about 2007 and the Stern Review was quite significant in influencing me, so that's now 15 years ago, I decided that whether or not we would succeed, the case for trying to argue for uh, policy change was so strong because the tail risks associated with climate change were so large and many of us focused particularly on the, the tail risks. And uh, Over time, that's become increasingly my position. And of course, over time, uh, the science has become, I think, consistently stronger. So as an economist, not a climate scientist, over the period of 30 years that you describe, I've become, I would say, not sort of every year, a little bit more, but consistently more concerned about the issue and more aware of the difficulty of getting anything done about it. And what is your assessment of uh, of the situation today? You wrote a year ago, so centuries from now, our descendants may look back on this decade as the one in which the changes of mitigating irreversible climate damage were lost. Uh, and that has been your tone in writing about our dealing with with climate change. What what is your assessment of it today? Well, talking to me, you know, you have to emphasize, I always emphasize, I'm not a scientist and I don't can't judge the climate risks. But what scientists have been telling us is uh, that the chance 
uh, of keeping the temperature increase above pre-industrial levels below 1.5 degrees centigrade with all the risks associated with that really depend on what happens by 2030, which is now only eight years away. And that above all, emissions have to decline dramatically by then. Global emissions have to decline dramatically between now and then. I think, if I remember correctly, about 40%. Uh, if we are to stop the risks of very serious climate instability, uh, the so increases in temperature above that with associated tip, irreversible tipping points. Now, my sense of what is going on is that the chances of any such cuts in emissions by the end of this decade are essentially zero. I don't see any sign that that will happen. There's clearly a plateauing, or there seems to be a plateauing, but that sort of cut seems very unlikely. Most of the growth, as you know, basically all the growth in emissions is coming from emerging and developing countries, and they also now generate the bulk of it. So the chances that they will stop their current path and reverse it seem to be very small. And even in developed countries, there's tremendous resistance to doing more, even in countries where there's been quite widespread realization of the risks, like my own. So I would say that my view, which I've held for, as I indicated to you, for the last 20 years, that we will not in the end be able to agree on sufficiently to prevent um, very, potentially very, very destabilizing climate change. The chances that we'll actually be able to do so are extremely so what I wanted to talk about was, of course, climate change over the years and climate change now and how it affected your view on liberal democracy and our political systems and how do you see the incapacity of collective action that is so needed at the moment? God, this is a pretty huge issue, isn't it? So I think that it's important to stress that this is not, I think, fundamentally a problem to do with democracy or non-democracy. It's uh, it's a problem, it's a collective action problem to do above all with the multiplicity of decision makers in a world of many, many countries. Let's suppose we had autocracies. There's no particular reason to suppose that autocrats will be more sensitive about the climate than democracies are. Indeed, we have quite a lot of evidence that most of them will be less so. I mean, that depends, uh, but uh, the politics of the awareness of climate change doesn't seem to change to me radically with whether the regime is democratic or the regime is uh, autocratic. So the biggest problem of all is we have a global problem and which requires a global solution, but there isn't any institution which has a coherent leadership that is responsible for the world as a whole. Uh, that's just a fundamental reality of a world of many nations. And uh, that's not going to change very soon. So we have to struggle through that. I think the biggest single problem, because it's a 
huge global collective action problem. And a lot of the difficulties have been working out a way of getting everybody to agree when their responsibility for the problem is very different, when their opportunities for dealing with it are very different, when their um, capacity to deal with it is very different. And the result is that global agreements, even when one is finally gets some global agreement, tend to be really very, very weak. And we've seen that consistently. It's a, it's a collective action problem. Then, of course, there is a huge issue of getting some sort of process going within individual countries that works out how to deliver on their responsibilities and accepts the importance of getting something done about climate. And of course, that's enormously difficult and proved particularly difficult in some of the larger countries, which are democracies, because the disagreements within society on who should bear the cost and whether it's worth bearing the cost uh, are, and on even the reality of the costs uh, are so profound. So you have a domestic political issue, uh, which is, I think, not really determined by whether it's a democracy or not, because so many autocracies are so incompetent. And then there's a huge global collective action problem. And the outcome is that political decision making has been effectively very, very ineffective. If you look at the actual emissions in the world, they have only been influenced to a very small degree by political decision making. The good thing, the only optimistic thing, though it's far too slow, is that technical progress has been more rapid than most of us expected. That's partly because encouraging climate change, adapt, mitigation and adaptation technology has come to be seen as a um, source of international competitive advantage. So this explains, for example, the immense investments of China into building up uh, its capacity to produce solar cells. I mean, that's been dramatic in reducing the cost. And the result of this is that in many countries, renewables have become much more competitive with old technology. They're generating an increasing proportion, at least of the increase in needed demand for electricity. They're making it possible to imagine a shift to an electric economy. But of course, in general, it's still too slow. But this shift in technology, which is not only in very small part, I think, politically driven, it's driven by a market and technological forces. That is the one, I think, really optimistic picture. So political processes don't work. Technology does but it seems to be still far too slow. So that's my best answer to your question. You, you said in the interview with Christiana Figueres that you hope for some kind of moderate disaster that would be big enough to wake us up, but it wouldn't be, be so big that it annihilated uh, human beings and that this appropriate scale uh, disaster. And then you said something that I found very interesting, that this was not something that you put in writing yet because you did not like the conclusion. Uh, well, 
there are some things, possibilities here that I really dislike, and one of them obviously is a moderate disaster. I mean, I'm not persuaded, I may be wrong, but I've not been persuaded, and I'm not that there's any real risk of the annihilation of human beings. I think we really have to be quite careful about the language we, we use. We're an incredibly adaptable species, unbelievably adaptable, and I would be very surprised if what we're talking about would actually lead to the annihilation of us, because that would mean basically the annihilation of all of nature. And nature has coped with enormous climate shifts in the past, and it seems to me very bold to argue that that won't be the case again. But leave that aside. I'm not an expert on that. I'm not going to go into that further. But I have been wondering what sort of medium-sized shocks would lead people to change. And it's quite difficult to imagine what they would look like. But I suppose temporary shocks to climate, which leads to immense overheating uh, in very important parts of the world, uh, might conceivably shock people into making changes. I don't know. I mean, this is only one of the things I don't want to discuss. One other thing that I've tried to avoid discussing because it's also so frightening, is geoengineering. And there's been quite a lot of debate on geoengineering and what that might involve if we fail to deal with mitigation in any other way. But that too is sort of has frightening implications um, in, on many different levels. And I don't think I'm expert enough to comment on. So there are areas in which I think my knowledge of the climate system and the knowledge of how people would react to changes aren't good enough to really describe in any realistic way in, in my columns. Over the last 10 years, maybe, we see more and more companies coming out with their own green targets. And there's a lot of hope among environmentalists. For instance, Bill McKibben in America says, well, we should we should applaud companies and business for leading the way here. And we should, instead of protesting against politicians, we should put pressure on on the large global corporations for, for them to advance, and we should put pressure on finance. And this is, is quite an interesting position for, for someone on the progressive side, but I think all options must be on the table. That that you you think of business as a, as driving some change that at least the political system is, is driving too slowly. How much do you believe that we can rely on markets and businesses to be kind of a vehicle of a green transition? Well, I think there are two aspects of this, one of which I've already touched upon, which is profit-seeking businesses developing and exploiting new technologies uh, that transform our energy systems in ways that are dramatic-gating climate. And that's a sort of, if you like, a core business activity. So if technology is adapt developing dramatically enough and businesses find it profitable to develop these technologies and find it profitable to invest in these technologies once they've been developed and they do so on a sufficient large scale, then the situation might well be transformed and it will be driven by normal business incentives 
operating through the global economy. And that would be a remarkable achievement. The question is whether that's going to happen on a sufficiently big scale. Now, the second view is that businesses not governed so much by, and by the way, let me go back. On the first one, obviously get that happen, you have to get businesses to internalize their sense of these opportunities by bringing out the potential for these new technologies and creating to some extent the markets for these new technologies through regulation of housing and so forth. Uh, housing, building, and all these other things could be regulated. Um, the emissions of the automobile fleet can be um, regulated uh, without radical steps by government, and this can sort of encourage the introduction of these new technologies, a sort of business-driven case. And my sense is that this is going to happen, but it'll just be too slow, much too slow, but it will happen because that's what the where the market seems to be going. Where I'm more skeptical is in the idea that businesses will be persuaded by shareholders, shareholder pressure, uh, ESG requirements to do things which they don't see as in their commercial interest, which are actually a cost for them rather than a profit, profitable for them. Because their concern will be, if we do things that are costly for us, then somewhere in the world, our competitors, it may not be in our own country, will do these things without those costs, and we will be at a competitive disadvantage. And if governments aren't regulating this to make it impossible for companies to exploit those loopholes in the system, then we just can't do them. Uh, there's a limit to what we can do because we're being asked to do things that don't coincide with our commercial interest. And that, in the end, won't work because someone somewhere is going to do what we're not going to do. So I'll give you an example. There's a tremendous pressure on the great Western oil companies uh, to stop exploring and investing in new uh, oil fields. Um, but that's not the end of the story, because most oil fields now, certainly the ones with high potential, are in emerging and developing countries. And they have large domestic oil companies, often nationalized oil companies, and they have access to the technology, even if they don't go to the Western majors, they can find smaller companies around the world that can offer a lot of the technology, perhaps not all, and they will invest in the development of their oil fields because it's seen as a national priority. In that case, are stopping the Western oil companies from developing fossil fuels might not make very much difference to the world. And there are many similar comparable um, examples. So I tend to think that if the normal profit motive for companies isn't strong enough to shift quickly enough, and I don't think it is, though it's helpful, then getting companies to sort of commit themselves to ESG objectives, Western companies, particularly European companies, be very different in America, it's just not going to work because this is a global problem 
and all the companies in the world, Chinese companies, companies in Saudi Arabia, everywhere, they all have to be part of this. And ESG is not going to apply there. So I tend to think that it is naive to believe that better intentions by companies, as opposed to very powerful generalized market signals, will make the difference. So when we look at our political systems, and we just had an election in Italy, which was an interesting event in a climate perspective, you have a country that's heavily damaged by climate change, and that's a climate change hotspot, uh, and where climate change wasn't part of the uh, electoral campaign almost at all. Um, so when we look at our political systems and we see how difficult it is to make climate change a priority, of course they pay lip service, and we have everyone claiming that they want to that they believe in the green transition, but that is the way through our political systems and then through some sort of global collective governance. That is the best way to achieve a green transition globally, in your view. Well, um, I'm just dealing with it logically. <laughs> uh, the um, It's very difficult, as I said, to deal with a collect global collective action problem other than globally but we can't do that because we don't have a global government uh, and so we have to do it effectively through national policy and basically this means or through the market because of new technologies as I said new technology new opportunities if it's going to be done globally that means all the major countries have to be involved that's pretty obvious um, And they have to be involved in a very determined and coherent way. That's not where we are. And I would say we're no closer to being there. Well, maybe marginally closer to being there than we were 15 years ago, but it's marginal. I mean, we've moved somewhat, no doubt, but we haven't moved anything like fast enough. I know many of my friends would think this is very pessimistic, but that's my sense of it. Um, I don't know of any simple solution to this problem. As you said, in uh, political debates in Italy, that wasn't very relevant. In recent political upheavals in Britain, it was really not discussed at all. In some countries, there is radical climate skepticism still around, and notably the US, which is a very, very big player in all this, the second largest emitter. Uh, the emerging developing countries vary, but in most of them, it's not the highest priority. Actually, I think the awareness of the Chinese in many ways is ahead of us, though they're very far from fixing their huge emissions problem. But the politics are, are in fact, quite simply horribly intractable. And that's become increasingly obvious given the urgent time scale. And the economics are not overwhelming enough to shift us away fast enough. Now, I don't, you know, I'm looking at this as an analyst, not as somebody who's recommending things. I recommend <laughs> that something be done. But the the problem is, for most people, this is a relatively remote concern. It doesn't profoundly alter their day-to-day -day life, even if we have very hot summers and we have big, big storms. But for most people, you survive it. Uh, you know, it's not the biggest thing in their lives. And 
and mobilizing people to think that this is existential has just proven to be virtually impossible. Um, so it tends to be largely an elite concern with, of course, some very significant movements among young people, particularly more educated young people, but they're a minority in our populations. So let's be quite clear about this. I don't know of any major country, you could correct me, maybe Denmark is the exception, but, uh, but I know of no big country where climate politics are the dominant concern in domestic politics. Uh, they're always, always something else. And when they, you've got a cost of living crisis, as we do now, a war, um, raging inflation, then I think um, people just don't, folk, political systems don't focus on that. I mean, to me, the core problem, pretty obvious, is humanity has been catapulted very suddenly in historical terms, the last hundred years or so, into a world in which these global environmental problems are relevant. It took them quite a long time to realize the salience of local environmental concerns. Much of the 19th century in Europe uh, and America, nobody paid any attention to those, but at least they're local. And because they're local, you know who's responsible politically and you know how to fix them if it's water or air in a water supply or air in a, in a city but this is global and we've never developed a capacity for global decision making because basically historically we couldn't do it even if we wanted to and we've never really seen a need to do it um so how we fix that in the time scales we're now dealing with i have no idea I have just one last question for you. I was born in 1974 after what the French called Le Tron de Glorieuse. And I always believed that the world was moving ahead. I knew there were crises and the new backlash and there. So I knew there would be problems. But I was I was taking kind of a moral progress for, for granted. And, and I'm quite surprised to all of a sudden deal with climate change in my worldview that we take responsibility now for damage for our children, great-grandchildren, uh, great-grandchildren. So it kind of changes my understanding of history and the history that I was part of. You were born just after the Second World War and has, of course, seen and lived through a lot. Uh, does does climate change, does that change your sense of uh, history and humanity? Well, not really. Uh, <laughs> I mean... I suppose the big difference from you might be that I'm more pessimistic and always have been. Um, the I've been so I was so aware as a child because my parents were refugees from Europe and because of what happened to our family or their family during the war in the Holocaust. I've always been aware that human progress is incredibly fragile cannot be for taken for granted. And the, limp, the progress we made can reverse. I've also been aware that there are constantly be moral challenges for human beings, which we failed to meet. Um, there are so many in the past. Um, so I've all, I have this sense of fragility and danger as a permanent element in my mental, makeup 
Uh, I'm not saying that's true. Most people of my generation probably isn't, but it's probably related to my specific backgrounds and experience. So the sense I have is you have to try and do your best with what's the situation you confront. So my sense of this is slightly different. Uh, yeah, it's quite different in, a, in the following sense. I think we've, we've made moral progress. I think we've genuine, generally made, generally, I stress, moral progress in our understanding of the treatment of individual human beings and our responsibility towards human beings, even people abroad, foreigners, which is quite a, an improvement, actually. Um, you know, very few people go around being nowadays being imperialists or uh, certainly in the West or think can think back to slavery with anything but horror. So we we clearly made some progress, you would say. Well, that was obvious, wasn't it? The difficulty with this one is it's so big. It has in his human historical terms comes so suddenly and it's so challenging politically and economically so if i've been told half a century ago um look our next challenge is going to be climate we're going to have to fix the whole economic system um without collapsing it to pr to provide people with economic security since i don't believe in any possibility of sort of taking away the the, the prosperity pe people mostly have in or desire um, we, we're going to have to redesign the whole economic system away from fossil fuel burning to a completely different system it's going to be a tremendously complex and difficult transition we're all not all but most of us are going to have to agree to be part of this as individuals as, as parts of companies and countries um, I would have said, well, that's asking too much. It's just too big a thing to do. Um, but nonetheless, I've sort of done my bit to try and encourage people in this direction. And there has been progress and it has been significant. I mean, if I were asked now, if I were told now, well, you've got 200 years to do this, I sort of think, well, we'll probably get there. Um <laughs> The problem is we've got so little time and it's such a big upheaval and we have inevitably shilly shallied for so long. But the point about this moral progress you're talking about here is that it's a different sort of thing from most of the things we tried to do in the past. It's not about improving our treatment of other people or who are living and real and we can perceive them right now. It's not about creating greater levels of social peace right now in a, in a social and political context. We understand and can and sort of know what to do about. It's about in creating a global technological and economic revolution of immense complexity on many dimensions very, very quickly. And I think maybe I'm wrong, but I think that's a different sort of challenge from the ones that you describe in one piece or some pieces I've thought of uh, thought about this as like being like being in a world war in a world war you mobilize like that 
But there is no other thing that tends to mobilize people like that. And people don't perceive it with that degree of urgency for reasons we discussed. So it's, I think it's different from the sort of moral progress that you think about. I'm not saying you're wrong. It requires us to achieve full, not complete, but very high levels of global mobilization comparable to what we did, well, say Britain and America did in the Second World War. But the enemy is more diffuse. It's not as easy to personify. Uh, the alliance is more difficult to construct. So to me, though, there's clearly a moral element, as you rightly say, because it's about the future and our responsibility to the far future. It's a much more difficult challenge politically, socially, than many of the other challenges we've overcome. So I'm not surprised by the difficulty, and that probably makes me a hopeless uh, participant <laughs> in these discussions because I'm not surprised. I find it very difficult to see precisely how you mobilize the necessary actions. Well, thank you, Martin Wolf, for taking your time. It's been very inspirational talking to you. And i thoroughly agree on your last point that this is a task unlike any other tasks in history and therefore we cannot blame humans now for not living up to it because it's so difficult but the more progress that we have made will enable young people and women and people of color to actually participate in the political action well i think everybody i mean of course young people people i mean people of color are the majority of the world so if they don't yeah. aren't engaged we don't get anywhere uh you know Westerners are a very small part of the uh, world's population, and even though they're very, very important historically in climate change, they're not going to determine the outcome on climate change, important though they are. So it's obvious everybody has to be engaged. But when I say everybody, that includes actually the middle-aged and old. It includes political elites, commercial elites, and it includes people with whom uh, we find it very, very difficult to deal. So to give you the most obvious example, we need an agreement between the West and China. Right at the moment, we're finding it very difficult to talk to the Chinese and vice versa about anything. Um, that makes it pretty hard. And I haven't even talked about Russia. <laughs> so I want you to keep on struggling and fighting, but it is going to be very hard. And I think myself we're going to have to do some quite a lot of adaptation alas and think about that and we may alas be driven at some point in this century towards quite a bit of geoengineering with all the dangers associated with that well thank you very much thank you very much and uh, bye bye det var min samtale med Martin Wolf og som sagt så udkommer hans bog The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism i februar 2023. Den kan vi så alle sammen til frem til. I næste uge har vi en helt anden type samtale, som på en eller anden måde er vigtig for hele langsomme samtaler. Projektet, jeg har nemlig talt med nogle af aktivisterne i den grønne ungdomsbevægelse om, hvordan de ser klimakampen i dag, hvad de vil bruge folketingsvalget til, og hvad de har lært af tre år med en regering med det grønneste mandat i historien, som både har succeser og fiaskoer. Det har jo været en del af vores ambition her på Information i det hele taget, at vi skal være et bindeled mellem dem, der bestemmer og dem, der protesterer mod magten. Mellem centraladministrationen og græsrodsbevægelserne. Vi skal lave journalistik, 
som dem, der bestemmer, bliver nødt til at tage alvorligt. Den skal være så redelig, så alle magthavere bliver nødt til at tage den alvorligt. Men den skal samtidig rumme så progressivt et kritisk potentiale, at alle dem, der vil protestere mod magthaverne, kan lade sig inspirere af vores idéer og tanker, og måske endda finde slogans i den. Så på den måde så kan man sige, at langsomme samtaler går ind i valgkampen i næste uge, hvor vi har lavet en særudgave sammen med Den Grønne Ungdomsbevægelse. Jeg håber, vi høres ved i næste uge. Tak for mig.